Well, today, I, this is a bittersweet day. We end our series through the book of James today, and it's been a long journey and a very profitable journey for my soul. I hope it has for you, but we call this series Growing Up for God, Lessons on Christian Maturity, and we continue that today, and we finish that today with James 5, 19 to 20. If you have your Bibles, join us there. James 5, we're going to look at simply two verses today, 19 and 20. And we're calling our lesson today, Difficult Love. Difficult Love. We'll get to the text here in a little bit. But did you ever have to say something hard to somebody? Did you ever have to say something difficult to somebody? Think about that question for a moment. As I reveal to you my 10 things that are difficult to tell people, okay? I have 10 things that I came up with that are difficult to tell people and see if this makes your list, okay? Number one, you have something in your teeth. You ever have to tell somebody that? I don't know why that's so difficult, but it always is. Have you ever been that person that you get to the end of the day and you check the mirror and you've had something in your teeth since lunch and nobody told you? And so it's been there and you didn't know. Why is that so difficult to tell people? I don't know. But telling someone they have something in their teeth is generally a hard thing to do. We just let it go. Here's another one very awkward. You need to lose weight. That's always very tricky to say. In fact, most of us just abstain from that. Let's not even go there. Here's another one. Number three, your breath smells. Stinky breath. Generally, what we'll do is we'll, uh, we'll do one of those passive-aggressive things. We'll either back up a few steps and let them know. Or, or if anyone ever offers you a mint or a piece of gum, guess what they're telling you? Your breath is a little stinky. So take that mint, take that gum in the, in the spirit it's intended. <laughs> That's number three. Number four, your zipper is down. Your zipper is down. That's generally nothing you want to say to anybody as well. Generally, I'll do something like this. I'll make like a little nod. I just kind of hope they get it. Usually, they think I have a tick. Um, but it's, it's generally just a hard thing to say. And I've, I've had to say it a couple times, and it's just an awkward thing to say. Here's another one. Number five, you need to take a shower. And the reason I bring this one up is because in college, we had to do this to one of our dorm mates. It had been weeks, I believe. It was a pretty rough situation. We actually had to get like an intervention. A posse of us had to go to this guy, and we were basically going to tell the guy, you're showering today one way or the other. <laughs> even if we have to force you in there. So that was a very awkward thing to do, but uh, necessary. Here's another one, number six. It's time to trim the nose hair. I don't know if you've ever had to do that, but that's, that's, that's not an easy thing to tell somebody, right? You know, it's looking like the African bush coming out of your nose there. Time to get some scissors. I don't know what kind of gesture you would give for that person. Just, I don't know. It wouldn't work. Time to trim the nose hair. How about number seven? Anyone ever had to do this? We need to break up. Always a very difficult thing to tell somebody. We need to break up. I had to do this a few times in college. Very messy, very awkward thing. I tried it in person once, took her out to dinner, to dump her. That didn't go well, as you might expect. I did it over email once. That didn't go well. I looked cowardly. One time I ghosted a girl. Anyone know what that is? I simply told her we broke up by not talking to her ever again. Really bad idea. Guys, don't do that. Don't do that one. In fact, she gave me a six-page note. She slipped it to me in the cafeteria about how much of a jerk I was. and I was a jerk. Um, but that was a very difficult to tell someone. We need to break up. And generally, those girls would look at me like they wanted to hurt me. Uh, here's number eight. You're going bald. Just shave it, bro. Okay. Who wrote that? Haddon. 
Did you write that? You're going bald, just shave it, bro. Okay. It's supposed to say you need braces. I don't know how that one got. Number nine, your sermons need to be 20 minutes shorter. Okay. Someone's pranking me. Who wrote, Grace, did you write that, Liz? This is, this is mean. Number 10, Blackberry isn't a thing anymore. All right, now that's just cruel. You wrote that one? <laughs> I don't know how these got on the list. Who did that? Who's trying to tell me something? Raise your hand. Slip the hand up. I'm just teasing. Those are in jest. Those are a few fun things that are a little hard to tell people. Well, that's kind of where we're going today. If you have your Bibles and you're in James, join us and we're going to read the last part of James. It's James 5, verses 19 to 20. Listen to the Word of God. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, And someone brings him back. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Difficult love is a topic today. Difficult love. We've made it to the finish line of James. Okay, five chapters, six months, and 19 sermons worth. It's been a long and bumpy ride through James, but hopefully a very worthwhile one. It has been for my soul. And as we finish this book, we need to remember that James is the one who told us that listening alone is not the goal of the Word of God. Remember James chapter 1, verse 22, where he said this. He said, but be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. That's what James says. So I told my children this. There are, I believe there are four steps in the Christian journey. Four steps. Had, do you remember what those steps are in putting you on the spot? What's step number one, Had, that I told you? To listen. Very, very good. Step number one is to listen, which we're all doing today. Hopefully, we're listening to the Word of God. Step number two, Had. What's step number two? Remember. Remember. Step number two is remember what you heard. Okay? So not only listen, but remember after you've heard it what the Lord taught you. There's a third step. Do you remember third step, Haddon? What's step number three? What is it? Obeying. Obeying. So we have step one, listening, step two, remembering. Step three, which James just brought up, is obeying or doing. And then there's a fourth step. Do you remember the fourth step, Haddon? What's step number four? Say it nice and loud. Obeying for the rest of your life. life. I put him on the spot. I wasn't sure he was going to remember that. Those are the four steps that I believe you have in Christianity. Listening, remembering what you heard obeying what you heard, and then obeying every day until the end. You have to remember that. The goal is not just to hear a sermon, let it pass through, and be done. Okay, Changing our actions towards obedience is the goal of the Lord for this book study and every book study we do, every lesson we do. If we've heard everything James has taught us, but we don't act upon what we heard, we've all wasted our time. Six months worth. If we do not obey what James has taught us, and I would even say much worse, we're now disobedient to the Lord because now we know what to do and we're not doing it. Anytime I ask my children to do something and they neglect to do it, 
whether they say it's forgetfulness or not, it is now disobedience because we told them to do something and they didn't. But if we listen or maybe even re-listen, go back over the lessons and refresh and help your mind understand what we talked about so as to be different in our actions, it is a promise from God in James 1 that we will be blessed in our doing. God will bless us. He will give us the blessing that we need to accomplish his will in our lives. Now, James ends this book in chapter 5 very similar to how he began it, without much fanfare at all. Okay, Unlike the Apostle Paul, James doesn't give us any salutation or any, hardly any greeting at all. And at the end of James 5, we also get zero valediction to the book. Okay, It's basically James just saying to us, here's what you need to hear, now get to it. You ever known someone like that, just blunted to the point, here's what you need to hear, now get to it. That's basically what James has been saying to us. And the way James finishes his letter is very interesting, to say the least. Now, throughout the book of James, he has referred and used the word brothers 15 times throughout the book of James, addressing the church. And you have to remember, this is not meaning only to men, okay? When he says brothers, he's including the entire church, all Christians, And he said the word brothers 15 times, my brothers. And James' use of the term brothers signifies that his heart is affectionate. It's affectionate towards his listeners. He actually sincerely wants them to become better versions of Christ followers. And also saying brothers signifies that James is not above them. He's a fellow peer. He's a fellow family member with them. And the truth that he is giving them through this book is the same truth that James needs to hear as well. And I will say that to you as well, brothers and sisters. I need this truth just like you do. So this lesson is to me as well. So once again, James says, my brothers. Now let us listen to this last bit of instruction with that affection that James meant it to have, okay? My brothers. There are three parts to this text. It's a very simple outline. Three parts. Number one is this. If something bad should happen, That's part number one. If something bad should happen, James will address what that is. Part number two is if something good happens to correct the bad that happened. That's part number two. We'll look at that. And part number three is this, that a very good result will take take place. If something bad should happen, if something good happens to correct the bad that happened, then a very good result will take place. Now, that's a very simple equation, right? But this is also very, very important today. A very important equation. Let's get right into it. Let's look at part number one. Where James says in verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. First of all, let's understand the doctrine of what James is saying today. Okay, The term brothers we already talked about is used as a term of affection. Kinship. Spiritually speaking, James would not call them brothers unless he believed he was speaking to fellow Christians. So we feel confident the audience that James is writing to. Remember James chapter 1 where he said that? He said, I'm speaking to you brothers, talking to Jewish Christians who had been scattered because of persecution. James has been telling us throughout the entire book he's talking to fellow Christians. And now James says, if a fellow Christian, if a brother among you, wanders from the truth. And right away we have to understand this has to mean that Christians can wander from the truth. They can have the truth, they can know the truth, and they can wander from that truth. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but have you done that? 
Have you ever wandered from the truth? I know I have. And if it wasn't a possibility, James would have chosen different words. And this is also supported from the rest of the word of God. I'm going to give you a cross-reference today. I think this is going to be only one of two flips. If you have your Bible, go to 2 Peter. It's also going to be on the screen if you don't want to flip. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 to 22. Peter talking now. Listen to the language, okay? He says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, so they are saved, they have had those chains removed, they have come to the knowledge of Jesus, and if they are entangled again in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them to have never known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to his own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Do you notice that? So the answer is, can Christians wander from the truth? And the answer is, absolutely. And the scenario James has in mind here is when a Christian, or we're going to use a metaphor today, and we'll say the word sheep, okay? Uh, TGD already brought that up. When a sheep or a Christian wanders from the church or the fold, whichever one you're talking about, into falsehood, error, apathy, and sin, okay? That's what's happening here. A Christian wanders from the church, from God, into falsehood, error, and sin, now, this is a very specific problem today, okay? This isn't just someone who sins against you in the church. A person, this is a person who has shown a pattern of spiritual wandering. Now, a person who sins against you in the church, that's a very different problem completely. That's one we'll handle at a different time. That's not what we're talking about today, someone who just sins against you in the church. This is a person who wanders from the truth, a person who is evidencing a spiritual pattern of no longer walking in the truth. They once did. They were once with us. They once, we once considered them our brother and sister in Christ. And now they're gone from our midst. No longer with us. And it doesn't tell us how long the wandering lasts. We don't know. It could be anywhere from a few weeks to several months to even years. But we need to picture someone who is showing a pattern of not living in the truth like they once did. That's what James wants us to understand. Now, I'm going to say this today. We need to be very careful here, okay? You and I need to be very careful with this text here because this text is not doing this. It's not giving us a license to judge our brothers and sisters in their potential wandering. Okay, make, make note of that. Put a star next to that. Highlight that. This does not give us the license to start judging others in their potential wandering. James has in mind someone we have evidence is no longer walking in the truth. Evidence. We know facts. We know there are sin patterns. We know there is apathy. We know there is disobedience going on. And this could range from someone who's no longer with us as, as a pattern. They were with us and now they're not here for weeks and months at a time. To someone who's showing indifference in the things of Christ. To someone who's bearing all kinds of sinful bad fruit. But you and I need evidence. We need evidence, okay? We need facts before we go down this road. We don't need presumption. Presumption is not enough. Presumption will take us to a bad place. 
So James is not speaking about those who we lazily judge and assume they are no longer walking with the Lord because they aren't matching up with our idea of maturity. Or those we don't have a true window into their lives, so we assume the worst about them. Guys, when we do that, that is very non-Christian. That's very non-loving when we do that. Okay, That's not what God has for us today. Before we go down this path, we need facts. We need evidence. And that alone is going to take work, to find the facts and to find the evidence. Without facts, we will injure a potentially true Christ follower and possibly push them further away from the truth. The very opposite of what James is seeking for us to accomplish today. But in this scenario that James has in mind, we know someone who is no longer walking in the truth like they once did. We have the facts to back it up. They were wandering on their own. They're without the fellowship of the Lord. They're without the fellowship of the church. They were with us and now they're not. And we're not seeking to judge them. We're seeking to restore them. This is the purpose today, restoration, not judging, not condemnation, restoration. And did you know this is the exact purpose for church discipline? I've said this before, but church discipline, some people get confused and they believe that church discipline is about punting people from the church, getting those wicked sinners out of our midst. And that's not the point of church discipline. The point of church discipline is the same point James has in mind here. Restoration. If you and I see this passage wrongly today, we could have the exact opposite result that James is seeking for us to accomplish. We could actually push people further away from the truth. So when he uses the term wanders from the truth, wanders from the truth, what does that mean? What does he mean when he says wanders from the truth? Well, what he doesn't mean is our ideas of what Christianity looks like. Okay, we have a, an idea, we have a standard in our own minds, and they're not measuring up to that standard, and so we believe they're wandering because they don't match my level of Christianity, my standard of Christianity. That's not what James is referring to when he says wanders from the truth. Someone who walks according to the truth is someone who lines up right behind Jesus Christ and obeys his commandments. And someone who wanders from the truth is someone who once did follow the commandments of the Lord, and now they're not. They have no care, they have no concern, they are disobedient, they are against what Jesus has taught us. That is what James means when he says wanders from the truth. It has to be truth that they're wandering from, not just our ideas of what we wish they would be like. Truth. It has to be they are wandering from the truth of God's word and the commandments of Jesus Christ. And yes, this is a real problem. James is not wasting any words here today. This is a real problem. Many, I would even say, unfortunately, have fallen into this wandering from the truth into the world and into the dangers of sin. It's, it's happening a lot. It would even say more than you want to consider. And that's part number one. If something bad happens, if someone wanders from the truth, now part two is going to be if someone brings them back. James says that if someone brings him back, brings back the wandering sinner, what does that mean? Well, the goal of the problem that James has just brought up is to bring back the wandering sinner. Okay, back to Jesus, back to the church, 
back to Christianity and following Jesus Christ. And remember, when restoration gets substituted with judgmentalism or condemnation of the wandering soul, you know what's actually happened? The devil has caught us in a snare. He's caught you and I in a snare. That's his goal, to turn restoration into condemnation. And now he's got both the wandering sinner and us. Because now we're doing the very opposite of what the Lord would have us do. And ironically, when you and I do this, when we condemn and when we judge others, we are now the one wandering from the truth. Isn't that ironic? When we seek to restore, but we don't restore, and we judge and we condemn, and we are very harsh to those who are wandering, we are now the ones wandering from the truth. And this is not what Jesus has for us. Now, I want you to picture a shepherd, okay? A shepherd watching over his sheep. We're going to use this metaphor throughout And he notices one of his sheep wander from the rest of the sheep, wander from the fold. Or even those who are parents. And you've either had young children or you have young children now. I want you to picture one of your children wander from you in the woods or a big shopping mall, okay? And if you're not careful, that shepherd or that parent might run after their loved one and they might yell at them in such a tone that the sheep or the child in fear runs away further from them into greater danger. And you could tell this is obviously not the goal of what James has for us today. The goal of this is, once again, restoration. And the question has to be asked, what would allow me to restore the wandering sinner? Not to judge, not to be harsh with, not to condemn, but to restore them. That is the point of this text. See, when restoration is the goal and the spirit of our actions for our wandering brothers and sisters in Christ, then then and only then is the process bathed in love. Love. And when this process is bathed in love, it's Christ-like. And it's an eternal gift to the wandering soul. Now that wandering soul is in the best position possible to return to the Lord and to his church because the spirit of restoration is there. And yes, bringing back a sinner is only done by the grace of God. Bringing back a wandering sinner is only done by the grace of God. I don't want us to step aside of God's grace and believe that James is giving us the power and us the glory to accomplish this on our own. Only God can bring back a wandering sinner, isn't that right? Only God. And if you've been brought back, who gets the credit primarily? It is God. God alone. But isn't it also true that God uses people to accomplish his will? Isn't it true? And you and I, going after the wandering soul with the grace and the power of God, is exactly what Jesus did for us. He came after our wandering soul with grace, with power, with wisdom, and therefore this is exactly what pleases God when you and I do the same. And as we have learned, true Christ-like love is sacrificial. You see, going after a wandering soul, it's going to require a few things from us. If you want to chase a wandering soul, it's going to require something of you to do that. Here's a few things it's going to require. Number one, it's going to require compassion. And I'm going to say it this way. Do not go after a wandering soul without compassion. (laughs) 
Because the thing you will accomplish is you will actually push them further away from the truth. And basically, if I had to define compassion, I would just basically ask it this way. Do you desire their welfare? Remember when Jesus saw his people like sheep without a shepherd, and it says in the text, he had compassion? And that's when he decided, I will be their shepherd because I want their welfare. I want their spiritual, eternal welfare. And the question we need to ask before going after a wandering soul is, do we want that? Do we desire their welfare, the welfare of that soul? And if you do, that is step one. Step two, I would say, is prayer. Before you go down this path, if you have the compassion to do so, Pray over that soul. Pray about that soul. We did that this past Wednesday. We sat down and we gathered together in prayer for this church and for our community. And we asked the Lord to give us what we don't have. And before you go down that path of chasing down a wandering soul, pray for that soul. Ask God to give you what you need to help that soul and to go after them in the proper spirit, in the proper season, with the proper words, in the proper tone. It requires prayer, and prayer is the first step of love. And it's also going to require time. Time. And that's something we are generally guarded with, right? We don't want to give up a lot of our time. And I'm going to tell you straight away that if you want to go after a wandering soul, you're going to have to give up some time. Time that you're not already willing to give. It's going to require some time. It's also going to require some energy. You will be tired probably because of this process. It'll also require earthly resources, money, possessions, your home. There could be a long list of earthly resources that it might require to go after a wandering soul. Most importantly, it's going to require Christ-like sacrificial love. Compassion, prayer, time, energy, earthly resources, and most importantly, Christ-like sacrificial love. If you want to go after a wandering soul, those need to be there. And if those aren't there, wait until, until they are. Because otherwise, we will not accomplish what James is seeking to, for us to accomplish. Are we willing to pay that? Are we willing to give what is needed to help restore a wandering soul? I mean, ask that question. It just might require more than you expect it to. To what lengths and what limits would you go? For a wandering soul. To what lengths and limits did our Lord go to restore your soul and my soul? Hadden, I don't know if you remember this, but probably about six months ago, um, we lost you. Do you remember that, Hadden? We lost Hadden. And we were in our home. And uh, I don't know. I, I do this when I'm in public for sure. I, I start counting all my kids because we have six going on seven, and my head is on a swivel every time we're in public. I'm counting all the time. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three, four, five, six. Generally in the home, I don't. Um, but I hadn't noticed Haddon for a while, and I said to Janine, where's, where's Haddon? And it was summertime. And she said, I don't know, maybe downstairs. And so I said, okay, I'll go check on him. So I went downstairs, and I called his name, and I didn't hear anything. I was like halfway down the stairs. So I decided to go all the way down the stairs, and I looked for Haddon, and I couldn't find him. And I came back upstairs and said, he's, he's not there. And I said, where is he? And she goes, I don't know, maybe he's, maybe he's back in the girl's bedroom. So I went down to the girl's bedroom. I went down to our bedroom. I couldn't find him. I came back in the living room. And I said, where is he? I don't see him anywhere. And she goes, I don't know. I said, did, did he go to the neighbor's house? Because it was summer and he has a friend who lives right next door. And that sometimes happens. And I said, did he go to Bryce's house? And she goes, I don't know, not that I know of. 
So now I'm texting the father of his friend, who is a friend of mine, and I said, Phil, have you seen my son? Is my son at your house? And he goes, I'm at work right now. Let me ask my wife. And, and she responded very quickly saying, Haddon's not over there. We haven't seen him. And now I'm getting worried and panicked. Wondering, did he go outside? Did he slip and fall? Did someone take him? Because that's always in the mind of a parent. And I'm starting to get a little panicked and a little worried. Now, Janine and I are like furiously, you know, scavenging the entire house looking for our son going, Haddon, where are you? We're yelling outside, Haddon, where are you? Do you remember where you were, Haddon? Where were you? (laughs) He was hiding. Haddon was hiding from us and he was playing a joke on us. (laughs) And it was, he thought it was funny. We went on to tell Haddon it wasn't very funny. Um, at least that part. Gen- generally speaking, Haddon is a good jokester. But that today wasn't very funny because it, it, it caused his parents great concern. And we didn't know if something had happened to our son. And the question, again, is what lengths and limits would you go? Because I, I, there's some part of me that kicks into like a, a Jason Bourne type of t- character. When my son is missing, I become someone I'm not. You know, I'm ready to bust down doors. I'm ready to drive cars with a gun out the window. and I'm just teasing. But I become someone I'm not because I'm concerned about someone that I love. Have you ever gotten there about someone who's spiritually wandering? Listen to part three. Part three, James says, is this. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering, listen to this, will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now the process of first recognizing a true wandering soul and then being willing to go after that wandering soul can be difficult. It can be complicated. It can be a mentally exhausting process. It will often be different than we expect it to be. It will possibly be harder, longer, and require more of us than we expected to give. And I'm just being honest. But let us consider the reward of possibly, potentially being used by God to bring back a soul from their sinful wandering. James says that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Wow. Wow, right? That's the reward of gaining back a sinful wandering soul. Now let's consider what James means here. He says the wandering soul, he calls them a sinner. Whoever brings back a sinner. Didn't we say that this person was a Christian? I mean, James, are you confused here? Is it a sinner or is it a Christian? Well, we need to understand what James is saying here. He's not calling them a sinner because they never trusted in Jesus. He's not calling them a sinner because they never followed him. I believe James is calling them a sinner because anyone who breaks fellowship with the Lord and his church is in sin. Do we know that? When you break fellowship with the Lord and with his people, you are in sin because the only other option than following the Lord is sin. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral. That I'm not really on fire and I'm not really backslidden. I'm kind of in the middle. I'm neutral. That's not true. You're either following the Lord and his pattern of righteousness or you're in sin. That's why James calls the Christian, a sinner at this point. It's obvious that when someone is wandering from the Lord, they're acting like the sinner. And James, excuse me, Romans 6.23 has taught us this. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, 
is death. And it's not talking about physical death. It's talking about eternal death. The wages of sin is eternal death. Therefore, spiritual wandering is deadly. It's deadly. James would not use that language, save them and cover a multitude of sins, unless spiritual wandering is deadly. It's not just, oh, you're missing out on some joy and some fellowship and some sweet times with the church. That's true. But spiritual wandering is deadly because the wages of sin is death. Now, we don't need to complicate this doctrine, okay? We do not know when people get saved. Even if they tell us, even if we were there for it, we don't know if someone actually got saved. We don't know that. I can't see the heart. We've all known false Christians. Isn't that true? People that we thought were saved and then they left and they never came back. But we're not the ones that need to figure out if someone is saved or not. That's never our responsibility. That is the Lord's responsibility alone. All you and I need to know is that sin is deadly and that walking in sin is flirting with eternal damnation. That's all we need to know. If someone I love is walking in sin, I need to consider that incredibly dangerous. And if I'm walking in sin, I need to consider that incredibly dangerous because the wages of sin is death. And I don't know the heart. So anyone who is wandering from the Lord and his church should be seen as someone who is headed straight to hell. Ourselves included when we wander. When we wander from the Lord and from his church, we're now headed straight to hell. And does that mean that person isn't truly saved and won't return? Here's the thing. We don't know. And that's the point. We don't know if they're saved. We don't know if God will bring them back. We don't know what is going on in the heart. All we know is that the fruit isn't good. Okay? The fruit does not look like fruit you would get on the path of Christ. The fruit is bad, therefore we need to have concern for that soul. But the wages of sin is death, and that wandering soul knows the truth. They know it. They've been around it. We're not talking about someone who never trusted in Christ. That's not what James is referring to today. He's, walk, he's talking about someone who was in the truth, who did follow Jesus Christ, and now they're not. So they know the truth, and they have clear knowledge that they are wandering. And that soul that has experienced the life-saving truth and grace of Jesus, and they know what they're doing is wrong. And I can rewind back 15, 16 years of my life, and I knew it was wrong. I justified it, like everyone does, but I knew deep down my lifestyle was wrong. So in a sense, when we go after the wandering soul, we're treating them like an unbeliever. In a sense, we are. An unbeliever that is headed straight to hell. But we love them, don't we? We love that soul. Just like we should love unbelievers and desire their salvation for them to know Jesus either for the first time or once again. And if we are coming after them with the compassion that we would have, and we are coming after them with the compassion we have for a brother or sister who is in grave danger. And I want you to consider, what would you do to save a loved one from grave danger? What would you do if someone you really loved was in grave danger? Would you pull them out of a fire? If you really loved them and they were really in grave danger, would you go to that length and that limit to pull them from a fire, possibly endangering yourself to some degree. And that, the picture that we're referring to, is the earthly fire. We know in Scripture there's an eternal fire coming. 
And the question again is what lengths and what limits would you go to save someone from that? The eternal fire. Well, when we go after the wandering soul, that's precisely what we're doing for them. Except the fire we're saving them from isn't an earthly fire that eventually will go away. This is an eternal fire that never, ever goes away. And I don't want anyone I love facing condemnation. Can I read you a quote that I've always loved from Charles Spurgeon? It's not on the slide, so just listen to it. Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with their arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one sinner go unwarned and unprayed for. Isn't that powerful? What would you do to save a soul from eternal damnation? James says, when we bring back a wandering soul, we will save their soul from death and we will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what does that part mean? We will cover a multitude of sins? Let's answer that very quickly. I think there's two likely interpretations and meanings for that phrase. Number one is when someone is brought back to Jesus and restored, their sins are immediately wiped clean and forgiven. That's what happens. That's the great grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. When a person confesses their wandering and returns to the Lord, the Lord is swift and prompt to cleanse them, to, to restore them, to heal that person's soul. And in that way, a multitude of sins have been covered. So it could mean that. Number two, it could mean this. When someone is brought back to Jesus and restored a multitude of sins that they would have committed have been avoided. When we stand in the way of someone's wandering and we, we also thwart any more harm to that soul from sin and therefore a multitude of sins is covered. So it could be either or, it could be both. Either way, when someone is restored, a multitude of sins is covered. And that person is now restored into a covenant relationship with our Lord Jesus for the rest of eternity. And guys, that's the best present ever. That is the best present you can ever give somebody, is restoration to God through Jesus. And if we do that, we will have the unique privilege of being part of the process of saving someone from eternal death. Yes, all glory be to God. But he would use us to accomplish that task. Think about that for a moment. A soul would be saved from eternal death and separation from our Lord because of the love that we showed them by coming after them in their spiritual period of wandering. Can there be a bigger privilege and purpose on the earth than this? Than for you to be used to save someone from eternal damnation and cover a multitude of sins. Now I want you to think about all the praise that nurses and doctors and frontline workers are getting right now for saving people from physical further harm from the COVID-19 virus. And that is something to honor people for. It is. But what about the person who sacrifices their life to such a degree that they chase down the wandering soul and they seek to get those eyes back on Jesus Christ? Guys, the praise and the honor and the glory for that sacrificial Christ-like love will never end. It will last and echo throughout eternity. And let's take a moment to imagine the possible result of not going after the wandering sinner. 
Can you imagine the outcome? Do you even want to go there in your mind? Eternal condemnation. For not wanting to inconvenience myself with time, money, energy, and my earthly resources. Now, it's not our job to turn them back, is it? That is not my job. That is not your job. I have no business turning them around. I cannot do that, and you cannot do that, and we shouldn't try that. Our job is to warn them and to tell them lovingly, with compassion, that they're going the wrong way. And I want you to remember the second greatest commandment of all time is this. Love your neighbor as you would want them to love you. So here's a simple question. In light of eternity, would you want someone to come after you in your wandering? Has anyone ever done that for you? Come after you in your wandering? Isn't that not the very definition of love? When they took the time and the resources and the energy to come after you, when it would have been very tricky to do so, and you might not like to hear what they're about to say? Most of you know my testimony, but my parents actually did that for me. And now I'm a pastor. Now I'm your pastor. And if you don't like me, blame them. It's their fault. Um, But that's pretty cool, isn't it? In my mid-20s, I'm spiritually wandering and headed straight to hell. I was practicing all kinds of evil. And not only was I spared eternal death, but the Lord set me on a course of eternal glory, helping people, other people, follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So was it loving or mean of my parents to sit me down and tell me that I was messing up in my mid-20s? Was it loving or cruel for them to tell me that I was wasting my life? Was it loving or judgmental of them to tell me that I wasn't where God wanted me to be? Was it loving or a waste of their time for them to pray for me over and over again to get back on track with the Lord? Looking back, I can't think of anything anyone has ever done that has been more loving for me than that, except, of course, my Lord Jesus when he died on the cross. No one has ever loved me to that degree than when my parents sat me down and told me, wrong way, Todd, wrong way. My question for all of us today is how far will we go for these poor, wandering souls? Would we step in the way of their wandering in hopes that the Lord would use us to bring back those wandering souls to himself? Do you remember what Jesus did when he first called the first disciples? He told Peter and a couple others, he said, follow me. Drop your nets, because from now on you're going to be fishers of men. These guys were fishermen. They caught fish. That's what they did for a living. He said, drop your nets, leave your boats. From now on, you're going to be catching men. (laughs) James is asking the very same from us today. You've been chasing your personal safety and praise and security and health and happiness. Why don't you drop all of that and start chasing something that really matters? Why don't you begin chasing a soul that is currently headed straight to hell? Would you give up what matters right now for what matters for the rest of eternity? Would you stand in the way of further wandering? Or would you neglect love when it's needed the most? Will you give the difficult love that Jesus gave to you? Now, we've gone through the three parts of the text, and now you understand what James means when he says what he says, okay? I believe you understand that. It's pretty straightforward. I want to transition now, and I want to help us understand a little bit of the spirit 
that the Lord spoke to me about this text, okay? And in an effort to help this church through the period that we've been in for the last year, I want to apply this in my life as a pastor for my church, okay? I want to obey this and not just hear this because that's a challenge even for a pastor. I hear it, I listen, I preach it, and then I move on to something else. I don't want to do that. I've been convicted by this lesson to start saying some of the hard things that has me concerning, that has me concerned about some of you right now, some of you that I haven't seen in weeks and months. Things that has your pastors praying for you and thinking about you, how to reach you, how to encourage you back with us. You see, we live in a world, weird world. In James' day, when someone was wandering, it probably would have been easier to see. There would have been only a couple options. Either someone is really sick and they can't be with us, or they're probably wandering, and we need to go after them. But in our day, we have numerous reasons why people can't be with us. Why people jo don't join our gatherings for weeks and months on end. They're too busy. There's sports schedules. Viruses. There's travel and vacations and holidays. There's work stuff. There's family stuff. There's personal stuff, etc., etc. And last year in 2020, a pandemic came. And now look around. Our church is seemingly half the size it was before March of 2020. So what are pastors supposed to do? We're supposed to assume the best, right? We're supposed to assume that our people are still spiritually vibrant and healthy, even though we have little to no evidence of it. We're supposed to give everyone the benefit of the doubt and just assume that because they don't gather with us anymore, that nothing is wrong and they're still on the track, spiritually speaking. Right? And then you have a pastor like me who's generally a pretty cowardly guy by nature. He doesn't like to stir anything up. He wants people to generally think he's a great guy. But then there's my inward turmoil over what I've studied and thought about for the last year. Over things that I cannot see in some of my people right now. And it's true, I don't know. I don't know. I can't say that those who aren't with us right now are indeed wandering. But I don't know. And that lack of knowledge causes me concern, even anxiety. And for the last few months I've prayed. I've asked. I've assumed the best and I've tried to give every one of you the benefit of the doubt. And then I studied James 5, 19 to 20. And my 11-month concern has turned into eternal urgency. What would you do in my position? What would you do if you were a pastor during a pandemic? See, eternal death is the result of spiritual wandering. Eternal death. Think about that phrase, eternal death. I think it's time I start chasing down some people. Start giving out the difficult love that people once gave to me. Does it mean I won't make a mistake? I hope and I pray not, but it's possible. Does it mean some of you won't take it in the spirit it's intended? Again, I hope and I pray not, but it's possible. Does it mean I absolutely will discover a wandering soul and bring them back to the truth? I don't know, earnestly. But it's time that I stop making excuses and start the process of gathering my sheep back to the fold.
where they belong. Because I am your shepherd. I'm not the shepherd, but I'm a shepherd in your life. And so is Pastor Mel. And if you're one of those who might be in this category of people, you've been warned. I'm coming for you. Or better yet, if we all listen to this today and we all listen to James' counsel, maybe the better way to say it is we are coming for you. Those who love about you and care about your eternal welfare are not going to stand idly by any longer. Now, I'm not trying to panic anybody here. I know there are some legitimate reasons out there why people haven't been with us for a long time. But I also know, I'm not a dummy, I also know it's possible that there's at least one of you who are wandering right now in this current season, and I want to be able to sleep at night knowing that I am giving out the difficult love that the Lord once gave to me and that he expects me to give to those whom I love. Now, I thought about what's a way to finish that, this passage today, this text today, because that's an awkward way to close. I'm coming after you. Let's pray. Um, so, I want to I look at a passage that I believe is, is one of the most difficult loves ever given out in the entire Word of God. It's going to be on the screen. You don't have to flip if you don't want to, but it comes from 2 Samuel 12, verses 1 to 14. Now, there was a man named Nathan. And Nathan, one time, was in a very difficult position. He had to say something to someone that most likely they are not going to want to hear. It was going to be very, very blunt, very awkward, very in-your-face. But let's pick up the reading in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 1. Because Nathan has to come after King David. Now listen to the first verse. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Are any of us here being sent to someone today? And he came to him and said to him, he's going to tell him a story. He's going to tell him a story, a creative way in hopes that David will listen to what he's saying. He says, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come to him. Verse 5, then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Cue Nathan. Nathan said to David, You are the man, King David. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord and done what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. Wow. Now, if you know the rest of the story, David was restored. He spent an entire psalm wailing and crying out and repenting to the Lord, and he got back on track. And we know David as the man after God's own heart. Do you know who gets a lot of that credit? Nathan. Why? Because Nathan came to David when you crossed the king, it could have been off with your head. It could, literally could have been the end of Nathan's life. But Nathan said, I'm concerned for David, my friend, and I'm concerned for his kingdom, and I'm concerned for his soul, and I will step in the way. He gave David, King David, the difficult love. And because of it, he spared his life and he spared his kingdom. The Lord has also given us the difficult love. And he told us when we were sinners that we had to repent. We had to turn around. We had to turn to him and be saved before we faced eternal condemnation. And because he did that, we found forgiveness and eternal life through his blood. And now it's our turn to either stand idly by while our loved ones continue to wander towards eternal destruction or to step in with the proper prayer, compassion, facts, and spirit and seek to turn the wandering sinner around back to the Lord Jesus. And if so, we will be like our Lord Jesus. And the counsel from James, as he closes the book, will become fulfilled prophecy in our lives. Listen to what he says again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let us not only hear what James has to say to us today, but let us do what he has taught. Let us give out the difficult love. Do it for your brother or your sister. Do it for the sake of eternal life and glory with the Lord Jesus. Or better still, do it for Jesus alone, who gave his body and his blood when you and I were the wandering soul. As we close today, listen again to the parable. Luke 15 now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents 
than over 99 persons, righteous persons who need no repentance. If you do not know the Lord and his love today, find it today. He gave his life so that you could be spared eternal destruction. Don't leave home without it. He's calling you home today. If you are the wandering soul, he's calling you home today. Come back, sinner, to your strong tower. Have your sins wiped clean. Get back on the path of eternal life. And if you do know his love, if you are walking in the truth, then be willing to give out the difficult love to others because Jesus once did it for you. See, the difficult love is Christ-like love. And it's love wrapped in eternal safety. Can we pray? Father, I thank you for speaking to my heart. And I hope my people have heard your heart, James' heart, and my heart today, Father, as we handle a very tricky passage. And we finish James. What a great book it's been. But Father, we finish on a strong note, maybe an awkward note, but a very strong note that you want your people back where they belong on the path of the Lord Jesus Christ, which leads to eternal safety and glory. Father, help us all. Help me as the leader, Father, to have the compassion and the prayer and the time and the energy and the spirit and the facts and the love to do what is necessary for those whom I love and let our people do it as well, Father, that they, all of us, would get behind you and, and look out for those souls who were with us and are not now and ask and pray, what could we do to stand in the way of their wandering so the devil doesn't cause any more harm to that soul? We thank you for what you once did for us when you chased the wandering sheep and you left the 99 in the fold to come after Todd Walker when he was 26. I can't thank you enough, but I praise you today for it. We glorify you, Father, in this passage, and I pray that you'd help us remember this today and obey it, and obey it for the rest of our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.